This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. The overturn of Roe v. Wade has triggered a lot of alarmist reaction in the media. Here's an example from The Atlantic, a piece called America is Growing Apart, Possibly for Good. The Great Convergence of the Mid-20th Century May Have Been an Anomaly. Well, for a lot of us, we kind of knew America was growing apart already. It seems like the media is just catching on. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. If America is dividing, as people on both the right and the left seem to think it is, does the press realize religion plays a role in that? The short answer is not really. And it's also fascinating. Here we go again. I'm really sorry to be kind of a broke record. But one of the disadvantages of being old, which I am increasingly becoming, it appears, is that if your memory is still good, you have a chance to remember how so many things that right now are all of a sudden supposed to be brand new and like really, really sharp, critical insights, like this Atlantic piece, are actually really old and these are situations that have been developing and have been discussed many times before even in the pages of the atlantic uh, one of the first pieces i ever really wrote down with a gold star at kind of nailing the age we're in ran in the atlantic and it was written by a man named thomas edsel who now writes for the uh, he's a journalism professor former political journalist who now teaches i believe at columbia journalism school or just Columbia University and he writes for the New York Times now and we'll come back to him after we talk about this Atlantic piece but for me this idea that America is dividing and developing into what is frequently referred to as Jesus land versus the United States of Canada and reason and liberty or something like that whatever labels people want to put on their particular cartoons to me i still hear james davison hunter's culture wars thesis from 1991-92 which was that america was developing into two different cultures with one of them believing that there is such a thing as absolute truth and the other believing that all truth is evolving and as one person put it, the only people who believe in absolute truths are actually probably crazy. Now, that was how things stood for a long time. If you read the Atlantic piece through a particular lens, and then you look at a piece that Thomas Edsel ran today in the New York Times, you can see that on the American left, in blue America, there now is increasingly a crisis between two radically different forms of liberalism. We can come back to that, but I think the press wants to believe the divisions in America are essentially about race. 
and that what we have here is kind of a, a variation on Richard Nixon's Southern strategy to where all of these Trump culture MAGA people are actually nothing more than racists, even though their activity in the 2016 and 2020 elections produced a map strikingly similar to the famous red versus blue map that we saw in the Bush-Gore election and we've seen in pretty much every national election since then. So the short answer to your question is that they've had many, many chances to realize it, but a lot of journalists don't really recognize the degree that religious traditions and concepts are dividing America in many ways. Even when they see it, like in the case with the fall of Roe v. Wade, how many times on Twitter did you see people say, forget religion, this is all about white supremacy, and white supremacy is the same thing as Christian nationalism? Did you see that any on Twitter in the oh, last week? Yeah, all over the place. Well, that's the rest of the equation. What's really striking about this Atlantic piece, and I would suggest people read it, is how he didn't even need to address the religion situation at all. To him, it's just obvious that this terrible Trump era is something totally new, and it's all centering on racism. And now it's a group of radical conservatives who are forcing a crisis in American culture using the mechanism of the Supreme Court, which they've been able to do now apparently for about a year. I mean, even with a uh, trans rights case thrown in there in the midst and gay marriage and whatever else, I'm sure you notice there's no mention at all of Supreme Court activism in previous decades that is largely responsible for the rise of the religious right and a lot of the things that this guy sees as a racist, rebellious, violent America. Those of us who have been around a long time and were there to watch it and were following the attempts of people like, say, someone like Jimmy Carter to, to try to stay somewhere in the middle of all this, we would all say that the, the war really began kicking into high gear with Roe v. Wade, and thus it's not surprising to see now that it's kicking into another gear with the fall of Roe v. Wade. In that vein, on the media coverage of the fall of Roe, has what you have been reading been mostly coverage or commentary? There's been so much of it that, to be honest, I haven't been able to read it all, clearly. But I do think it's safe to say that the anger and the partisanship seen on Twitter from many blue checkmark journalists is seeping into, into the coverage. And we can look ahead and try to say, well, where does the coverage go next? And I think you can see two basic stories that need to be covered, one of which I looked at in my column this week for the Universal Press Syndicate, which is and we've discussed it here at Issues Etc. and at Crossroads, we're entering into a stage where people who understand Roe understand that this has all now been kicked back to the level of state 
politics. Abortion has not been banned. It's kind of interesting to see people saying that they want to leave America when they live in California, where, if anything, abortion policies are only going to go further to the cultural and moral left in the weeks ahead, and their state is likely to become a kind of what some people would call a abortion tourism state, or others would simply say it will be a sanctuary state for those who are protesting the fall of Roe. So what's going to happen at the state level? And this is a very important story that points us to one of the two stories that I predict the press will now jump on very, very quickly. And the first story concerns what some people refer to as the abortion abolitionist movement. And this is a group of people on the, I hate to call it right versus left because that has so much freight with it, but one side of the pro-life movement right now wants to say that any compromise on abortion policies at the state level, any willingness to compromise, even if it's to have bills that say women will not be arrested for murder if they have an abortion. Now, then you get into things like exceptions for medical necessity. You get into exceptions for rape and incest. You get into heartbeat bills, which don't go far enough for the abolitionists. But they're going to discover this abolitionist cause and try to paint it as the rising force within the pro-life movement as opposed to the reactions we've seen from the Southern Baptist Convention, which has a, a big abolitionist versus more traditional pro-life voice battle on its hands, we're going to see the Catholic Church largely ignored, I believe. And, and I wrote my column this week about the efforts of the national organization called Democrats for Life. And Democrats for Life tries to represent the 30% of American Democrats who in polling identify themselves with some strong definition of pro-life, primarily meaning they want to see laws passed that you would have no chance of passing under the Roe and Casey legal decisions. And these pro-life Democrats who are an endangered species inside the Beltway, I think there's one left in the Senate, Joe Manchin, and then there's another left in the House. But the head, Kristen Day, the head of Democrats for Life, noted that at the state level, they have hundreds of people who are pro-life Democrats, many of them black and Latino, and many of them in places like West Texas, where old blue dog Democrats still exist. These people are going to be very important in the negotiations to create state laws on abortion. And they're going to be seeking to get as much protection for the unborn as they can to build as big a coalition as they can. And they probably, in a lot of purple states and even in some red states, they're not going to be able to get a full-scale ban on abortion, but they're going to go for what they can get. They're going to go for like a heartbeat bill or for sure a ban on abortions after first trimester. They're going to do everything they can, and then they're also going to back efforts to increase aid to women and families, things such as the Mitt Romney, Joe Mankin Protect the Family Bill, 
which will probably not get serious discussion until after the midterm elections. Because, as Kristen Day says, nobody ever wants to discuss anything positive going into midterm elections. That's not what midterm elections are all about. So that's one story. The other story we're going to see is a full-scale, massive, coast-to-coast fascination with crisis pregnancy centers. And there's going to be increased efforts to ban crisis pregnancy centers in blue states. And a story to keep an eye on there is the announcement by the Roman Catholic Churches of California that they intend to create a network of care for women, children, and families covering the entire state of California, uniting the efforts of all Catholic medical services. Now, have you read anything about that in the mainstream press? I have not. I'm rather stunned to hear it. Doesn't that strike you as a rather important story? Yes. Well, and then the Catholic Church has lawyers and by the way, so does the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And when we when we see the Mormons begin to get involved in this, and we see Catholics begin to get involved in this, and we begin to see Alliance for Defense of Liberty and the Beckett Group and other groups begin to defend pro-life crisis pregnancy centers, that's going to be a huge story in the weeks and months ahead as well. And, of course, the violence against Catholic churches and pro-life centers and offices has not been getting that much coverage. And the night of rage from Jane's Revenge and others, I, no, I don't think anybody expects that to go away. So those are two stories that our listeners can look for in the very near future in terms of whether the press picks up any attempt to do balanced and accurate coverage on some important issues on both sides of this case. We're already seeing what I think is a fascinating theme. To what degree is the next stage of abortion politics going to end up being a battle between the money of woke capitalism and big tech in particular as they all create policies to fly, I guess we should call them pregnant people, on their payrolls out of state to get legal abortions and fly them back at company expense. And the question is whether those companies would do the same thing for people who want to adopt or for single moms who need help bringing children to term, or to what degree are these policies only interested in funding abortion. And you're going to have the billions of dollars available to massive corporations running head-on into the funding for crisis pregnancy centers, which will, of course, as always, primarily come from evangelical, Pentecostal, and Catholic churches, black, Latino, white, etc. So look forward to that story as well. So, Terry, you mentioned before the break the violence. And as I said, Ordinarily, if it bleeds, it leads. If I turn on the morning news, it's the shootings and the fires that all dominate the, especially if they got video or pictures, that all dominate the local news coverage. And I think in a different time, violence against Roman Catholic churches and crisis pregnancy centers might have been among some of those stories, but they're not. What is going on? Well, if this was violence against Catholic churches that are a part of the sanctuary movement for immigrants, 
I think you'd be seeing wall-to-wall coverage of it. Not to sound too radical at this point, but I mean, you've one of the big themes of these podcasts is that for the press, there's good religion and there's bad religion. And good religion is the Catholic Church pressing for causes that fit the editorial pages of Blue Zip Code, mega media enclaves, and bad religion is things that oppose them. And so I think what we're seeing here is they're trying to make up their mind whether there is such a thing, in effect, as a good Molotov cocktail, a good arsonist, a good activist who knocks the head off statues of Mary and Jesus, etc. Because these are very emotionally distraught people who are fighting for a good cause, which is what some would call the sacrament of abortion, and that it plays such a pivotal role in the worldview and doctrines of the sexual revolution. And the sexual revolution has been, post Roe v. Wade, at the center of almost all of our battles, or many of our battles, in American politics, specifically focusing on the Supreme Court. So I think the much like we saw in some of the the riots of two years ago, I think the press is trying to decide how these acts of violence fit into the template of how they view this overarching story. So we're going to continue to have Clemente Lisi following that story very closely, even if he kind of finds it hard to go back to that well over and over. But I don't expect the attacks to stop. Do you expect the press to eventually start covering them? I don't know. I honestly don't know. That will depend on the degree to which they fit it into the template. For example, the press could have been covering crisis pregnancy centers for a long time. I mean, the fact that there are more crisis pregnancy centers in New York City now than there are abortion clinics is probably not a new phenomena. That's probably not something that happened last week. But it's a story now because it fits into the overarching view of this bigger national trend of this great divide. And the crisis pregnancy center are the fake clinic, as one story I'm going to write about tomorrow put it. And Julia Dean is looking at the huge piece on crisis pregnancy centers that ran in the New York Times, the Associated Press, and some other places. She'll get to that early next week as well. We're going to continue to watch that because it's a very important story. But my honest answer is I do not know what the press will do with the violence against churches and the violence against crisis pregnancy centers. They've got to figure out how it fits. So return, if you would, to the theme here that America is more divided than ever before. It seems to me a little early to come to that judgment. There's even talk of at least metaphorical civil war, yeah, uh, things well, like that. The, the the rhetoric seems to be beyond the pale of the language of objective journalism. Yeah, well, the Atlantic piece, which is commentary, not hard news, even gets down to where it, it talks about the states that pass laws in the wake of Dobbs and that this is going to represent their approach to racism as well and all other social issues. And what's the the rather strong phrase that he comes up with at one point? 
we're going to end up with laws so entirely different that they created a form of domestic apartheid. That's pretty strong language, and it fits with the divide. I was going to read a, a paragraph from a very important book on this subject. These actually are the very opening lines of the book, the very first thing. It's time for Americans to wake up to a fundamental reality. The continued unity of the United States cannot be guaranteed. Right now, quote, there is not a single important cultural, religious, political, or social force that is pulling Americans together more than it's pulling us apart, unquote. And that's the opening of David French's book, much overlooked in the midst of everything else, called Divided We Fall, which is a cry for American unity to be saved through federalism, through the belief that you don't have to have the same solution to every problem in every single state of the Union. Yet the Atlantic peace essentially calls federalism a form of domestic apartheid. So we can see that post-Roe, we've had a, from the viewpoint of pro-lifers, at the very least, we've had a victory for federalism, something that isn't explicitly in the view of the writers of the Dobbs decision, something that isn't explicitly in the Constitution now goes back to the states, which is to say it goes back to an essentially federalism mechanism. Now, what we're going to see, if you follow people like Rod Dreher, David French, and others, what we're going to see now is the degree to which corporations begin to weigh in to punish their people in red state America economically, technologically, and we see this all over the place, such as the battles over Disney and culture. We see this strongly in battles over public education, etc. And I want to end, if I can, or at least veer toward the ending by noting that David French noted in his book that divisions in America will be heightened by two different issues. Now, see if this is rather prophetic. One is the fall of Roe v. Wade, at which point the left will do everything it can to restore Roe and then go further to crush the state's that tried to act to protect the unborn and to restrict abortion, they will need to be punished if the left manages to pack the court, elect a wave of new justices, and strike back. So that's one of the scenarios with David French. And the other, he said, is the rebellion of liberal blue state America if the Supreme Court issues a strong decision defending gun rights and the Second Amendment. Now, in the days before the fall of Roe, did you notice any emotion in the press about that New York State decision that said the right to bear arms includes the right to bear arms? Yeah, a little bit of emotion, I would say. Just, just a little bit. So remember that this is the, these are the two issues that David French cited as the dividing points. And now we move on into the stage of whether or not depending on what happens in the midterm elections, whether there is an attempt to pack the court or to find ways to reject any of the actions of the current court, say, in the next year or two. I see that getting more and more emotional and divisive. But let me go back briefly to Thomas Edsel, because I want our listeners to look up his byline, 
do a search for Thomas Edsall, E-D-S-A-L-L, and then things for like religion, comma, court, comma, liberal, comma, conservative, red, blue. Do your own search terms, but let me give you some headlines. Many times here I've quoted his essay from 2000 called Blue Movie, in which he pointed that in American elections, moral and religious issues are the true dividing lines now between Republicans and Democrats. And the Pew Forum just found that Republicans who back abortion rights are infinitely less religious than Republicans who are pro-life, and that Democrats who are pro-life are intensely more religious than Democrats who are in favor of abortion rights. Religion is a key part of that, but listen to some of these headlines, amazing headlines from the last five to six years by Thomas Edsel. America, we have a problem. The rise of political sectarianism is putting us all in danger. He recognizes that a sectarianism of politics, it's an interesting word, sectarianism. Here's another one of his headlines. Conservatives are happier than liberals. Discuss. And here's the headline that really jumps out at you. Does how much we hate each other really matter? And when he takes on a topic like that, he recognizes the power of religious, moral, cultural issues in American life. Now, finally, the piece he ran today, Democrats are having a purity test problem at exactly the wrong time. And this brings us full circle because what he argues is that the new left in the Democratic Party is no longer interested in compromise at all. They're no longer interested in discussing compromises on any of these issues. The new left, he says, is kind of creating a new form of liberalism in which there are absolute truths that must be enforced. Now, that's an interesting wrinkle on the James Davison Hunter thesis because the old liberalism, the, the liberalism of evolving truth and the need to compromise and the, the fact that you shouldn't have any absolutes on the cultural right, that liberalism is now turning into, in my words, historically kind of a French Revolution liberalism of pure idealistic secularism that must be put into law. And any attempt to compromise is a violation of equity, of liberty, of equality. And that's must reading today in the New York Times. Democrats are having a purity test problem at exactly the wrong time. He's afraid that kind of absolutism is going to kill the Democratic Party in the midterms. Terry Mattingly is senior fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thanks. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at GetReligion.org.